Ayushi Mona and you're listening to India Booked, a podcast where we lean into the idea of India through its literature and we speak to authors who bring this to life. There are few passions as consuming as the love for travel. Author Shivaji Das has written The Other Shangri-La which is about his journey through the Sino-Tibetan frontier in Sichuan. Do you want to know more about the world's highest town that's also the birthplace of important lamas, the world's largest monastery and also the highest slum, a beauty valley famed since antiquity for its good-looking and strong-minded women, a pilgrim circuit once terrorized by bandit monks, and a small town that gave birth to China's favorite love song? Then do grab a copy of The Other Shangri-La and listen to this episode of The Book, where we talk about this very lucid narrative that Shivaji Das spins on this adventurous journey across the Sino-Tibetan front with his wife. Hi everyone, I am Ayushi Mona, your host on India Booked, a podcast where we lean into the idea of India through the voice of authors and literature. Today, I'm elated to have with me Shivaji Das and Lobo. Uh, Lobo was born in northeastern China, lived in Singapore since 98. She's an award-winning writer and poet and she also runs Yo-Yo's career channel on YouTube. Shivaji is the author of four travel memoirs and photography books. Uh, his latest book is The Other Shangri-La, Journeys Through the Sino-Tibetan Frontier. This is the book that we're going to be discussing today. Um, apart from this, Shivaji's work has been featured in Time, Economist, BBC, etc. He conceptualized the acclaimed Global Migrant Festival, as well as the Refugee Poetry Contest, and is also the managing director APAC for Frost & Sullivan, which is a research and consulting company. I am extremely excited to have Shivaji and Lobo both on the show. Welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having us here. Hi, great to be here. So I think my first sort of, you know, and this is really my feedback as a reader, uh, is that if I had to pick an adjective, for this particular book, you know, it would be quaint. I feel uh, at times that, you know, a lot of travelogues um, encroach upon, uh, you know, the places that uh, authors write about, right? There's a certain amount of distancing or a certain layered objectivity uh, almost when authors try to describe a place, right? It's not, it really doesn't tie in so much as to what they want to say from the heart. Uh, it's really that, oh, we enjoy traveling. This is what is fascinating about this place. And this is how I have discovered myself through it. But your book really for me uh, was interesting. And, and why I call it quaint is because I felt a sense of kinship. And, and that's not often how I feel when I write travelogues. Uh, what was the traveling experience like for both of you? And, and, uh, and do you think that that kinship was palpable when you were experiencing or is it just something which you know my reader's mind has really conjured uh, as an afterthought yeah i think uh, uh, of course this is not the first long trip that we took together we have been 
traveling uh, in similar style to many other locations around the world and often uh, they have been away from the luxury or the sense of luxury that uh, we usually look forward to when we are traveling and uh, often in these circumstances you meet people uh, strangers who are from different socioeconomic backgrounds and uh, who have nothing to uh, really get from you other than just your company and throughout this travel all these strangers we met um, there was a sense of caution on our part especially i think in the initial parts of the travel when we had read a lot of travel guides and travel books which asked us to be cautious because people will be looking out for uh, cheating us or asking for our money uh, so that bit of caution was there but as we went along as the days went by and the kind of kind gestures that we received the kind of openness and curiosity that we were greeted with with everyone along this journey and uh, when especially you are in these very harsh conditions living with the nomads uh, going through very dangerous roads with fellow companions that sense of kinship uh, i think i felt very closely you know like uh, this is a matter of life and death not just for me but for all these people and we might as well as survive together and get through so that was always there and this is something that i especially look forward to any trip these small gestures of kindness and small uh, shared sense of humanity is something which i really enjoy and makes me want to travel every now and then yeah i pretty much align with what uh, shivaji just shared so on my part i think there are also two more things that's interesting for me one is uh, to really wake up for example in the neighborhood of uh, and, you know, sort of a very small town that's hardly featured in any travel guidebook. Um, and then, uh, you know, going around to, to find a place where the locals will eat at. Um, and, and so that's the authenticity. And the other point is really the surprise factor, because the, in the places where, um, you know, you, you don't go to, if you don't go to a chain hotel, you actually don't know, you don't have expectation of how it could be. Um, and if anything goes very different from the normal kind of hotel experience, you you really just take that as what it is instead of complaining about the service. You know, this brings me um, uh, to the second part, really, right? Uh, of every travelogue, really, is also about a lot of um, insights and a lot of interesting touch points that one has in terms of quirky experiences, and and you've shared plenty of them. Um, I mean, there is that particular anecdote about the ear cleaner or the anecdote about, you know, getting a refund at your buffet. So which, uh, for both of you, which was your favorite, you know, anecdote from this book that you'd like to share with the listener? Uh, for me, I mean, there were so many interesting ones and the whole highlight of this trip were these very unique characters who were unique in their own ways and went uh, beyond any stereotype that people would make of Tibetans or Hans uh, in these areas. Uh, but if I were to consider the entire trip, the highlight for me would be towards the end of the trip when we were uh, witnessing, surprisingly, we didn't expect that there was a beauty contest happening in this uh, town famous for queens and uh, queendom. Uh, but then suddenly we chanced upon this beauty contest 
And then uh, as we were uh, watching this beauty contest and spent a few days, uh, we got kind of entangled and were kind of co-conspirators in a love triangle which was uh, kind of unfurling just in front of our eyes. And there was a lot of suspense initially in our minds, like what was happening, what was the relationship between these characters. And slowly, bit by bit, the clues were revealing themselves and uh, we were on our own journey, they were on their own journey. And eventually all this story fell in place. So this whole love triangle in such a context where you have the most beautiful women uh, the town was famous for, and then you also have the surrounding regions where the men are especially known for their tall and handsome nature. And uh, to see a love triangle opening up uh, through a suspenseful manner right in front of our eyes, uh, that was the most exciting and interesting one for me. And the eventual denouement of that uh, in the way the, the man involved was expressing his whole vulnerability in terms of knowing that he is doing something wrong in his mind, but at the same time, he's, uh, he's forced to kind of continue with that situation. And that vulnerability from a person who is famed for the macho character was also very interesting for me. Lobo, how about you? Um, well, for me, it was slightly different because when that uh, love triangle was uh, sort of unfolding, we were actually on such a, a, a very uneven and pretty dangerous road to go into a very remote village. And uh, as the, the driver was very engrossed in, you know, on the phone and then talking to us to showcase that he had foreign um, customers in the car, not focusing on driving. I, my heart was just almost out of the throat. <laughs> so I was really nervous. And, and the car went on and on and the, the, the rocks sometimes were just falling from the side of the curb. And then he was suddenly stopping in the middle of a slope, getting a lady into the car. Um, it was not at all, um, you know, that enjoyable, adventurous at that moment for me. <laughs> That's hilarious. And, and I think these are, you know, things that one sort of experiences. I was also, and, and of course, I mean, the podcast journey is to also really understand one aspect is to come and look at books. But the other aspect is to sort of touch um, a base with aspects of India and, and could be cultural and social or political or, you know, from multiple aspects. And in and throughout this book, right, that every time, Shivaji, you identify yourself as Indian, right, uh, locals respond with, with reverence, really, for the home of the Dalai Lama. Now, that's something that in, in like a mainstream Indian consciousness, we don't really think of ourselves as a country where the Holy Dalai Lama lives and stays, right? And, and currently, it's really not even part of the discourse so much. But what was your experience in terms of being Indian-like, right? Um, how does it sort of personally influence you on this journey? And would it, say, have been different had, say, Loba not really been around to guide you? Of course, language being one, but what if it was a solitary journey and that that's something that I was, you know, sort of musing over? Yeah, that's that's an interesting question. And uh, I've, I've been to China as such uh, several times. And uh, some of those times I have been uh, without Lobo as well on my own. Uh, 
uh, I must say in terms of say the warmth of the people or the welcome that I've received, uh, it has not been that different. In fact, when I've been alone, maybe I was uh, welcomed even more by some strangers. And that's maybe the nature of hospitality. The Chinese are one of the most uh, hospitable and uh, they take really great care of their guests and very few cultures compared to that. Uh, but in this trip in particular, it uh, opened a lot of uh, windows, I must say. It opened a lot of opportunities for us to interact with people, uh, especially with the Hans who were sharing a lot of their perspective about Tibetans with us uh, because they could speak the language and they had uh, Lobo, they saw Lobo in, uh, in my company. Uh, but also I think uh, it uh, opened opportunities in terms of language, being able to interact with them uh, in a much deeper sense uh, which that language familiarity brings in and in that sense i was perhaps uh, fortunate to have logo around with me uh, but also i think it uh, myself being indian also opened out uh, the tibetans to speak a bit more openly and they took uh, some risks i would say to share their opinion about india and about the Lai Lama and about hans in general and maybe it was also because they could trust us as a couple because they saw these these two people from these two very different backgrounds and maybe that strangeness uh, made them trust us even more so i would say that uh, two of us coming from two different cultures together in this trip perhaps opened a lot more boundaries uh, or opened a lot more opportunities for us to interact and understand a bit deeper some of the people that we met along this journey and it could have been a bit different if i was traveling alone that's interesting. Uh, Lobo, would you say between the two of you, right, uh, are there nuances, right, that, uh, of course, one aspect is that you're married to each other, but you're also travel companions, right? And you're almost sort of this prism uh, through which the journey is experienced, right, because you're translating along. What are some, has have there been challenges or interesting times in your previous and current travels, you know, where there have been nuances that really struck at you or, or an anecdote perhaps of something that you found really difficult to translate, um, which would have completely different context, say, from say, a Chinese versus an Indian perspective. Right. I think um, on an overall, I think in all these trips, uh, almost nothing like that about us being Chinese Chinese and Indian couples. Um, and of course, there are times they don't even figure out we are couples, uh, such as mm -hmm. like in Nepal, they thought he's my tour guide. Mm -hmm. And then the other time in, in China, they thought I was his tour guide. Um, but I think the nastiest comment we received was actually in Busan in uh, Korea. In one of the migrant towns, there were a lot of uh, Bengalis and also uh, some Chinese workers. And when I went down to talk to one Chinese laborer who moved there, he was like, why did you marry a Bengali or an Indian? Because he thought I married someone like, uh, you know, the, the people he knew. Um, but I thought that was like the nastiest comment ever to as a couple. But in China, I, indeed, I think we received a lot of uh, very curious glances. But that curiosity was 
often leading them to, you know, leading to them coming to us to talk to us um, and finding out more. But there was nothing like uh, sort of uh, from the other uh, angles. And if I can just add on to that, traveling together in this way, uh, uh, maybe I'm a bit more fortunate than other travel writers in the sense that I get access to a lot more women and uh, the female perspective. Yeah, and. Uh, many of the experiences that I write about in this book and in my other books as well has been Lobo just talking to other women when I was not around and then later understanding them. Also, many women feel comfortable interacting with me because they see uh, this lady who is also accompanying me. So in that sense, and what people have said also after reading this book, there are a lot more women characters in this travelogue and other travelogues that have written. And I think a big reason for that has been uh, the way we have traveled together. That's actually a very interesting perspective, Shivaji. Um, I was speaking uh, to uh, Teresa Rahman, you know, and uh, uh, in one of my other episodes, and she covered conflict journalism in in the northeast of India. And she was telling me that her biggest trump card, really, uh, and she mentioned this on her episode, is the fact. Uh, that she looked at things from, say, like a female perspective, which is, uh, and, you know, and asks questions or talks to people from a lens that people normally don't think of, right? So when you think of, say, a military camp uh, or a terrorist outfit, you don't think of women cooking in their kitchen. Similarly, I think when I spoke to Rajat on his, he said that uh, he felt a part of what, uh, you know, could be uh, his book was the women on the highways of India, which he obviously couldn't access. So I think that's actually like a fantastic point. It, it also makes me curious, right? You have done a lot of work um, uh, around this whole, you know, the work that you've done around the Global Migrant Festival. Uh, Tibetans, of course, are one of the largest migrant communities today in the world. And we all are aware of the sort of political tension and the complexity um, of the lives of Tibetan folks. How does your understanding of the whole migration landscape um, play into, you know, writing this book? Yeah, I would say that uh, one of the things that always impresses upon me is uh, this instinctive nature of people to migrate uh, whether it's forced migration or whether it's uh, out of just curiosity and a sense of adventure. And uh, like you rightly said, uh, Tibetans are one of the greatest migrants, I would say, uh, not just because of the political condition out of which many have migrated to India or to the West and to even Singapore, uh, but also by nature over centuries, Tibetans have undertaken these very difficult and very long journeys yeah, because they, their settlements are remote, they are far from each other. So in order to get some of the things they need, they really have to travel very long distances, very uh, long time horizons. And uh, so much so that this whole aspect of traveling is very much embedded in Tibetan culture, which has come in over the last thousands of years. So they have auspicious days and auspicious symbols which determine when you can travel, when you should stop and many symbols and signs they take from the environment and uh, many of these drivers for instance who we met along the way have made these very long journeys along the Sino-Tibetan highway which is uh, so dangerous that it is supposed to make uh, men out of boys as they say. Uh, so uh, I would say that my work with the migrants uh, has 
that curiosity angle and also a bit of familiarity with the nuances of different cultures and what has been their trend towards migration and habits of migration over the last uh, few centuries. And that kind of educated in some way uh, my understanding of the people that we met along the way. And along the way, we did meet a lot of such uh, great migrants uh, who were taking journeys either because of economic reasons, going from one place to another, Chinese who were coming all the way from Southeast to set up a small hotel in so far a place, so high, unfamiliar a place. And then there are also the pilgrims. Uh, Tibetans are uh, known for taking these very long journeys for the sake of pilgrimage. And we met countless of such pilgrims who were actually traveling in very uh, dire conditions with very little material comfort. Some of them have been prostrating and then uh, going in that fashion, very long distances in this high altitude. And they were all covered with mud and soil. And uh, when they reached their destination, that smile that we saw in many of their faces, uh, that is something which is very hard to describe. So to answer your question, I would say this work that, we, uh, that I've been doing has kind of educated me a bit on some of these nuances. That's uh, really interesting. You know, another piece, and I think you say this quite early in your book as well, is that, uh, and travel, of course, reinforces this. But I think there's this one section where you speak of how in the Middle Ages, you know, it was a matter of prestige for Tibetan kings and nobles and royalty to, you know, sponsor masters of Buddhism from India, right, to their provinces. And the monks would then teach and, you know, there would be scriptures. Uh, but uh, over over time, right, all of this has been stranded or lost due to lack of interpretation and, and the changed landscape in the last whatever hundred uh, years of more than that actually so a lot of these luminaries have been lost and and people are forced to live nomadic lives what really for you from this entire experience was perhaps very startling uh, was something that sort of uh, made you yearn for you wish this could go back to being this way again if, if there was something like that, of course, it need not be the case again. This is, again, a reader's uh, sort of afterthought. Uh, but was it something that in your particular experience you wish that was not lost or could be transformed or something that both of you think should change for the better or go back to being? Yeah, I think that's an interesting question. And, you know, uh, this is something I try to consciously kind of avoid this uh, sense of nostalgia and kind of thinking that the past was better than the present, uh, which is very tempting because from the past, we often only remember the most horrific stories or the most glorious stories. So there's uh, these things in between, we forget uh, what has happened in the past. Uh, so in that sense, even if I look at this region, uh, although there are many political tensions and all which are there, but the material improvement in people's lives has been real, yeah. the kind of uh, well-being that they have now in terms of health or in terms of uh, just economic situation is much better than they used to have. Many aspects of the earlier society in terms of the feudal nature, the uh, limited rights that many of the people had in this region, uh, those are much better in the, in the current circumstances. So I'm, I'm cautious about uh, thinking that, you know, the past was better and we should go back to some elements of it. But uh, like you mentioned, there may be some elements which are perhaps worth going back to. 
One I would say maybe is the uh, the whole Tibetan love for nature and appreciation of nature. And again, this is something very much in their culture, uh, just because of the beauty and the starkness of the weather and the uh, sun and the skies that you see in that place. And in the recent years, because of mining, because of uh, cultivation and because of rapid development, a lot of that has been damaged. And so this uh, renewal of respect for nature is something I would uh, wish to go back to. The second, like you mentioned, is this whole uh, cultural confluence between Mongolians, Indians, Hans, Chinese, Tibetans, which used to happen in the past. Uh, of course, it used to happen in a limited manner, but still there were these channels which were open. And that was there until the 80s, I think, uh, when Deng Xiaoping sort of opened up uh, China to some extent in the 80s. Uh, there were many Tibetans who could still travel to India and uh, you have that generation of Tibetans who can speak a little bit of Hindi even if they are living in Tibet now. Uh, so those windows have kind of closed down in the last few years. And I wish and I hope that a lot of uh, this rivalries that we have without really knowing much about each other and uh, having, uh, having a bit of, uh, bit of greater understanding about Chinese culture because of the family relationships that I have. I found that there are a lot more in common between these two cultures than uh, that divides us. So uh, going back a little bit, a little back into those era when there were these channels open for travel, for intercultural exchange would be something I would uh, hope it come back. Fascinating. I just also think that, you know, that whole peace around the world's largest monastery and highest slum. And I don't know if I'm pronouncing this right, because obviously my pronunciation is based on what I've read. Ladungar, right? Yeah, um, that's great. Uh, so I think uh, I found that whole excerpt very, very interesting. And of course, as I think right now, foreigners are again no longer allowed to visit. But life... Uh, and and I think I came across articles and pictures, uh, you know, of pilgrims performing ritual prostrations in Larung, or small restaurants or these houses, right, which are which are just tiny enough to with, for a bed or a stove, right? And there's no heating; it's all communal. It just and it's home to four thousand monks and nuns, and it just sort of you know makes me a. Uh, I, and I was completely, you know, nodding my head, Shivaji, while you were speaking. Because when you sort of start looking at people as individuals and not nations, we all really have so much in common. Whether it's, you know, really an ordinary person's fight for survival or a quest towards religion or, uh, you know, looking at fulfilling daily needs. And then they say, I think a passing remark that uh, one of the young monks makes, right? He says that, oh, it will take so much days to build a house and the children that's where the children stay and you know people feed birds and cats and uh, and nobody really has a clue there's no census really of how many people are staying but you sort of have an idea um, that the settlements have so many people and it's such ordinary living right if you ask me this could be the story of say a slum in Mumbai or a slum in Delhi or Calcutta, you you just have to take it out of the context of it being like, uh, you know, the world's largest monastery and and these people uh, having a particular background as monks, but they could be ordinary people because their concerns are so ordinary and all of us really are the same. So 
what you said i think deeply resonated with me and and i i concur also with some of this point of view right that is very easy to uh, negate and neglect uh, when you don't really know a lot about each other except what you're told versus what you experience yourself i have i think i have a very fundamental question for you do you look at yourself as a traveler first or do you look at yourself as a writer and uh, and and where where does this whole uh, uh, you know aspect of writing come do you write on your travels or do you just record things uh, do you store them for memory what is the author experience for you versus the traveler experience for you like yeah so uh, thanks for asking that i will uh, take this opportunity to clarify that i consider myself first and foremost a traveler the uh, writing or the importance of writing comes way down below in in terms of how important i consider that uh, so what i take uh, from all these opportunities to go around is this whole idea of uh, interacting with people from very diverse backgrounds getting to know a little bit more about their culture which is perhaps different from mine and that's really what is fascinating for me and uh, only if i see that there is sufficient enough material uh, where i can add a bit more value and let this be known to the rest of the world is when i pick up the pen or the keyboard and decide to take it on as a book Uh, so i have traveled a lot more than i have written about uh, in by many multiples i would say and uh, first and foremost uh, any decision that i make to go to any place will be the whole ability to enjoy the travel experience uh, not that you know there is an opportunity to write about that place uh, but to your other question yes uh, when i travel uh, uh, we travel actually uh, there is this ritual that every night we will come back early to our hotel room and open our notebooks and start scribbling down all the experiences that has happened uh, during that day uh, again i would say for my case it's not with the point of view of uh, uh, coming or uh, bringing it out as a book or an article but just to keep the memory alive and uh, even now sometimes i go back to some of the notes i had taken a few years uh, of journeys a few years back and it always makes me smile that's really really um commendable you know because uh, you know a lot of people who don't really foremost cons- consider themselves writers right would say shy away from taking to the pen right because of course there's so many ways of chronicling one's experience with travel right and, and then today you could say just start an instagram page or a blog right but to really sort of dedicate yourself to writing like a 200 page book Uh, requires i think a certain amount of discipline so i i frankly think it's quite commendable i think my last question and and this is uh, uh, really uh, for uh, you know again not really as a writer but which is a book on traveling that has influenced you both deeply that you would like to recommend and which is probably a book that may or may not have anything to do with travel uh, that you would like to recommend to our listeners okay i'll go first uh, so there are so many writers uh, whether they are travel writers or reporters who have left a deep mark on me and the ones i would like to name are the early works of vs naipaul when he was going through india pakistan indonesia malaysia iran uh, those books Uh, also richard kapuscinski the polish journalist who has been all around the world and his works 
they are not necessarily travel writing per se, but again, uh, uh, very influential as far as I'm concerned. Uh, but if I really pick one book which made my feet itchy and uh, made me very disturbed at work and wanting to just leave it all and take a backpack and leave was this book uh, On the Road by Jack Kerouac and uh, it had a big influence and if I read it now maybe it uh, doesn't uh, make me that excited at this point but when I read it in my early 20s I felt really restless for at least two three years and wanting to replicate what he was doing in the United States I wanted to do the same thing in India so uh, yeah I would say Jack Kerouac's On the Road would be the most influential from a travel perspective as far as I'm concerned. I think when it comes to traveling, uh, Shivaji was the one who kind of opened that window for me. So I only started traveling when I met him. And uh, the most traveling books I've read, I think, must be from him as the single author. Uh, of course, the a recent uh, traveling book I've been uh, reading was from uh, V.S. Nepal on India. Great. I think thank you so much for both these recommendations. It's been lovely to talk to both of you and and to, of course, um, uh, read uh, the book, Shivaji. I read through it in two sittings. And, and, and as I said, I felt a sense of kinship, which is um, something that one doesn't always feel while reading travel books because they always seem to be making a point about the place as opposed to just embracing the journey. And I, I felt that about your book. So thank you so much for writing. And, and I wish a lot more people read it and buy the book. Thank you so much, Ayushi. Thank you for reading and also for the kind comments and for also having us on this show. Thank you, Ayushi. A beautiful night. Thank you so much. Uh, to everyone listening in, Shivaji's book, uh, The Other Shangri-La, Journey Through the Sino-Tibetan Frontier, is available on Amazon. You can read it in a Kindle version. You can buy it off Flipkart. Um, if you are somebody who's looking for a slim read on travel uh, with a lot of endearing anecdotes, I highly recommend it. Um, wishing you all uh, a great morning, evening, night, depending on whenever you're listening to this podcast. And Shivaji and Lobo, thank you once again for doing this. Do not forget to tune in to us on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Ghana and HT Smartcast. <laughs>